Well, um, let's just bow for a moment, shall we, and pray. And we'll ask the Lord to help us. Father, these are significant moments. And we thank you for these quiet uh, times when we can gather together corporately around your word. We thank you for it. And we pray today that you would be with us as we look into it. We pray that this would not be merely a mental or intellectual exercise. We pray that as we look into your word that we would encounter you, the living God. We pray that you would speak to us and that we would have hearts that are ready to listen and obey your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been following our talks over the last few weeks, you'll know that we're in Matthew's Gospel, and we've reached, uh, in the last couple of weeks, chapter 10. Um, This chapter, as you now know, marks a massive turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, because this is the point where the disciples of Jesus change from being the recipients of Jesus' mission to being participants in Jesus' mission. That's why at the very top of the page it says Jesus sends out the twelve. They've been receiving, now they're going to participate. And that's another reason why it says at the end of verse 8 here, freely you've received... Now Jesus says, freely, I want you to go and give. Uh, Last week and this week's talks kind of hand together in the sense that last week we were thinking about why. This week, I want us to think about how. Um, And when I say how, I, I don't necessarily mean practical specifics, but more what should the mission of Christian believers look like in this world. Last week was all about foundations of Christian mission. This week, I want us to think about the characteristics of Christian mission. There's, a, there's at least a couple of significant reasons why I think that this chapter is all about characteristics. First of all, let me just show you a couple of striking things. One of the most striking things here is that as Jesus sends out his disciples into their world... He only says, in how many verses are there here? 42 verses in this chapter, there are six words on content. As Jesus sends his disciples out into the world, there are six words on content. You'll find them in verse 7. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Counted right? Six words. That's not a long sermon. (laughs) It's not a huge amount of content. That's it in this whole chapter. And uh, I don't want you to misunderstand me. The content is extremely important. We'll get to that in a minute. But the fact is, the whole of the rest of this chapter is about how they are to behave, respond, act, even feel this chapter is like a pep talk from the commander-in-chief, Jesus himself. This is how you are meant to do it, guys, is what Jesus is saying to them here. 
But the second interesting thing is that Matthew never tells us actually what happens as they go. Some of the instructions in this chapter, you may know, appear in some of the other Gospels. And in those places, the writers report a little bit about what happened when the disciples went out. But here, Matthew gives a whole chapter of instructions. When he gets to the end, just flick over the page. Chapter 11, verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. There's nothing about what they actually did. What we get is a chapter of instructions. It seems to me, you know, sometimes people talk about the destination and the journey. It seems like Matthew isn't so concerned with where they end up. What he's interested in is recording Jesus' words about how they're meant to behave while they're going there. Matthew's much more concerned here about the journey than about the destination. So last week was why. Why is Christian mission important? This week is really all about how. Now, my my aim today is to help you to see three broad characteristics of Christian mission that emerge from this chapter. But first of all, a little confession we're only going to spend about the last five or ten minutes thinking about those three broad characteristics. And the reason for that is we need to do something important first. I I think personally this chapter is hard to grasp because there's a kind of relevance gap here. What has this chapter, with all these detailed and some slightly weird instructions got to do with us. We read this chapter, and it's all about the region of Galilee, not Rotherham. It's all about Jews who live there, not people who live here. And it's all ancient history from 2,000 years ago, not 2016. I have to tell you as well that many of the Bible scholars that I've read trying to work out what this means so I can talk to you about it. Many of them even say, this chapter doesn't really apply to us here because it's so specific and local to them. But as I'm reading, I want to say, hang on a minute. Not so fast. This is not just some random historic document. This is the word of God to us. This chapter is part of an an unfolding drama planned by God and it does actually all hang together coherently and so I think there are many things we can learn from this chapter about the why of Christian mission but before before I give you at the end my three broad characteristics we need to do some groundwork first to identify what the big connection is between their time and our time. There's something that they are doing here that I think we also are meant to be doing now. And as a result of that, there is one big idea that is simmering away under the surface of this text. And it's this, I think. All of the instructions that Jesus gives here presuppose the vindication of Jesus as the ultimate king 
I, I think that is the big thing that connects what they're sent to do in their time and what we are sent to do as Christian believers in our time. In fact, given our theme, we we might even say that this is the key, number one, primary characteristic of Christian mission, that Jesus has been vindicated as the ultimate king. If we understand that as the key idea, I think it will be a lot easier for us to draw some right principles from how they did their mission so that we can be on mission too in God's way now. So let me take a little bit of time, most of our time even, to show you what I mean by that statement. You you know how much, I I think you know how much I love timelines. Uh, I suppose as an engineer, I want to know how things flow, how things fit together. Um, And rather than butcher this chapter and rip it out of context, although it might be good to think about a little timeline. So you know that the whole of the Old Testament is really... There you go, about promises that God made over many years of history that one day a king would be born who would come to bless and save the world. These promises are embedded in human history because God chose one nation, the nation of Israel, to make these promises to the world through In order to fulfill all of these historic promises that are embedded in human history, at the exact moment God had planned it, Jesus is born in Israel as a Jewish baby. This little picture, by the way, isn't a space invader. It's meant to be a crib. I don't know if you could see that. It's meant to be a crib with a little baby waving at you. It was a bit small. It looks like a space invader. Um... And you'll know that Jesus lived pretty much in obscurity for the first 30 years of his life, quietly and patiently waiting for the right time to launch his public ministry. Let's see if this works. There you go, 30 years of obscurity. I just said that. Oh, I gave the game away. Oh, there we go. Um... You know that the Gospels all reveal the initial popularity of the Lord Jesus, firstly around Galilee in the north and later on around the capital in the south, Jerusalem. But as he ministered, opposition to his claims grew, and you know that this culminated in him being crucified by both the religious and secular authorities collaborating to get rid of him. But God raised him from the dead, demonstrating with great power that this Jesus was indeed the promised Son of God. In other words, here here is a world that rejected God's promised King, but God vindicated him. As king. What we have here is a crib, a cross, and then a crown. The central issue in Christianity is the identity of Jesus, 
Who is he? He himself claimed to be the promised Christ, the Messiah, God's promised king. He did not claim to be one possible leader among various other equally good options. In a way, the claims of Jesus are both inclusive and exclusive at the same time. His claims were inclusive in the sense that he invited everyone, without exception, to embrace him as king. He welcomed and called all people. And the door was wide open for anyone who wanted to, to come right in and believe him. And yet, at the same time, his claims are very exclusive in the sense that he demanded loyalty and commitment to himself as the only true and ultimate king. What we've seen in Matthew is that during this three-year public ministry of Jesus, he first of all went around doing good. He preached and taught. He did amazing things to demonstrate his authority and prove his identity. But then there comes this point here where the Lord Jesus calls and trains and sends his disciples to do the same things that he's been doing. This timeline is important and the six words of content that Jesus gives them is crucial. Their task is to go local. Jesus says it here. Verse 5, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Their task is to go local to their fellow Jews, simply where they live, and proclaim that Jesus is the king and the kingdom of heaven is near. Remember that as they do that, they're speaking to people who know all the promises of God. They know the Old Testament. These are the people who ought to have been waiting for the king. And that king has now arrived. This is a nation that is... Is this a metaphor that can be used? This is a nation that's waiting at the bus stop for the bus to arrive. And the job of the disciples is to go to the bus stop and say, Hey guys, the bus is coming. The king is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's their job. These are people who should have been waiting for that. I want to show you something really interesting in this chapter, though. You'll see that in this chapter, Jesus gives them a timeline. Did you notice that? He urges them to get on with the task of telling as many people as they possibly can that the king has come and the kingdom is near. But look at verse 23. Jesus says to them, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. And then he says this, I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before 
the Son of Man comes. Does that strike you as a slightly odd thing for Jesus to say? Their job is to go local and to proclaim that Jesus is the coming king to their fellow Jews. And Jesus says, you won't quite have finished when the Son of Man comes. Who on earth is this Son of Man? Spoiler alert. It is Jesus. You know that. But has he not already come? Or is Jesus talking about some kind of dramatic second coming at the end of the age? It does seem to be a weird turn of phrase. And if he's talking about Jesus' second coming at the end of the age, surely all the cities of Israel know by now that Jesus has come. What, what, what is Jesus alluding to by this phrase? First of all, you, you may know, that this does seem to, be, to have been Jesus' favorite title for himself. It, it's like Jesus most enjoyed talking about his humanness. I'm reminded of the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are four children, Peter, Edmund, Lucy, and Susan. And they are all referred to, the legend was, that in Cape Paravel, when the sons and daughters of Adam sit on the throne, that, 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 that's how they were referred to, the sons and daughters of Adam. It kind of reminds me of that. The Son of Man is human. But this is not just a title made up by Jesus that he liked to use. It is actually hugely symbolic. Because exactly the same title appears way back in the Old Testament as one part of the historic promises that God had already made to his people. So, we're going to digress. Just bear with me as I explain a little what this description is intended to conjure up in our minds. Centuries before Jesus was born, many Jews were in exile in the Babylonian Empire. Some of you are here with us from Persian Empire. This is the region of the world where many Jews were in exile. One of these exiles was a Jewish prophet named Daniel. He was an extremely gifted administrator who worked in the royal court and he was a thoroughly godly man. And he records for us in the Old Testament book with his name, in Daniel chapter 7, a bizarre dream that he has. And in the dream he sees four beasts. So just bear with me. There's a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then fourthly an unidentified ferocious beast. And Daniel tells us later that these four beasts represent successive, brutal, earthly empires. These empires rise and fall and succeed one another, and they consume people. But during the vision, Daniel also gets a sort of parallel glimpse of what is going on in heaven. While all of this turbulent history is raging on planet Earth, Daniel's gaze 
sees something of what is going on in heaven. He sees the throne of God, transcendent and high above all the chaos of this world. God himself is beautifully and powerfully described as the Ancient of Days. What a great title that is, the Ancient of Days, seated on his amazing, unshakable throne. It makes me think of, I don't know, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. He was about 7,000 years old with his wisdom and power. This Ancient of Days, though, is all pure white and blazing fire. And there are literally thousands upon thousands of beings bowed before him. In this scene, heaven's throne room is portrayed as a court. And Daniel sees books being opened. There's anticipation. And you get the sense that decisions are about to be made. Judgments are about to be passed down in this court. And as everyone waits for these awesome proceedings to begin... The door opens. Thousands of heads turn around. Thousands of people stop breathing for a moment as the door opens. And everyone turns around to see what the interruption is. And after all the weird and wonderful symbolic beasts, what we see is a man, a human being, who walks right in through the door into the very throne room of heaven. Here is how Daniel describes this glorious arrival. Just move it on for us. Okay, until the sun comes. And again, here you go, let me read to you. In my vision at night, I looked... And there before me was one like a son of man. You remember that? Coming on the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days. He was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, doesn't it, you? Which son of man, or if you like, which son of Adam could do this? Which person do you know in human history who could come on the very clouds and be brought into the throne room of the universe? And be given every honor that can be bestowed and receive the worship and adoration of every tribe and nation and language. Who is this person? When a Jewish person who knows the Old Testament hears the description or title, the Son of Man, where do you think their mind goes? Right here to Daniel chapter 7. Who is this one like a son of man, a human being who comes right into the presence of God as a king, mighty, a worthy human king? Don't forget there are beasts here that Daniel saw that symbolized earthly 
kingdoms. Who is this king who stands and reigns above every other kingdom? When I was younger, we used to sing a song in our church. I I don't know, maybe we've sung it here, I don't know. And it had these words. Restore, O Lord, the honor of your name. In works of sovereign power, come shake the earth again. That all may see and come with reverent fear to the living God whose kingdom shall outlast the years. Daniel caught a glimpse of exactly that. Here is a kingdom that will outlast every human kingdom. And the question for a Jew would be, who is this person that Daniel describes seeing? If you, do you ever play the game Last Man Standing? This is Last Man Standing. What Daniel sees is the greatest king over all other kings whose kingdom shall endure forever. Now, I said we would digress. What was it that Jesus said in his timeline? Go local, but you won't have finished the task before the Son of Man comes. I think this is what Jesus is referring to. This very scene in heaven that Daniel caught a glimpse of. You will not complete the task of going to every town in Galilee before the Son of Man comes. Comes where? Where is the Son of Man coming? You won't have completed this task until the Son of Man comes to heaven. You will not have finished telling people when he comes and opens the door of the courtroom in heaven and walks right in, head held high and glorious, to claim his rightful crown. It strikes me very powerfully that what we have here in the Bible is like a film with two different camera angles. One camera is showing the arrival of Jesus in heaven. We read about it. But there is another camera angle that shows his departure from this world. After three years with Jesus, what the disciples saw from their perspective is Jesus leaving them. The disciples saw Jesus ascending in the clouds to heaven where he had come from. They see him go, but where did he go? Where did he go? (laughs) Where did he go? They saw him rise from the dead and ascend on the clouds. What they see is the camera angle of him leaving. And what was it that Jesus said to them before he left. Then Jesus came to them. This is at the end of Matthew. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What they see is him late. He knows where he's going. They see him disappear. In the next moment, what Daniel sees happens in heaven. Do you get that? What is amazing about the Bible as a book is that we get to see the arrival of Jesus centuries before in the book of Daniel, before we even find out who this Son of Man actually is. It's not until Jesus comes that we realize that he is the Son of Man that Daniel sees coming into heaven and claiming the crown. So when Jesus says, you won't finish the job of flitting around the towns and cities of Galilee until the Son of Man comes, you can see now, I hope, that this is what we might call ascension language. Jesus is talking about his exaltation in heaven. Jesus is saying, you won't have finished the task I give you before I die and rise again and ascend to heaven to be exalted to the highest throne that will endure forever. Now, can you see that Jesus is saying go in two different ways that are connected? Here in chapter 10, Jesus is saying, go local. Go to the towns and cities around here locally, to the people you know, and tell them that the kingdom is near. Go and tell your fellow Jews that every promise they ever heard in their Bibles right now is coming true in this person. Go, Jesus says. But after the vindication of Jesus, in chapter 28, Jesus is saying, oops, Go global. Go to the whole world and tell them that I am God's promised king. Tell people everywhere that the kingdom of heaven is not just near, but now it's actually here. And of course, the reason I say vindication of the king Whoops, have we gone? There we go. The reason I say vindication of the king is because in between these two goings is a crucifixion. Jesus sends these disciples locally to proclaim that the king is here, but as a nation, Jesus is rejected, crucified in shame outside the city of Jerusalem's walls. Do you know what happened in the trial of Jesus? This is now an earthly court, a religious court. And Jesus is led into that court to be cross-examined. And he stands before the high priest, Caiaphas. I went to his house in Jerusalem earlier this year. He doesn't still live there, obviously. Doesn't make him very old. In Matthew 26, Caiaphas says to Jesus, in this religious earthly court, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. 
And Jesus replies, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, you don't believe me now, but you'll believe me then. Man, that made them angry. And this religious earthly court, they gave him a cross and they killed him for blasphemy. But God raised him from the death. And just a few short weeks later, he ascended and walked into a different court. And the verdict in that supreme heavenly court was not to give him a cross, but to give him a throne. Jesus vindicated, rejected by man, vindicated in heaven. Now, I've deliberately labored this background so that you can see the link between then and now. All of this background that we've talked about is designed to close the relevance gap. In Matthew chapter 10, these disciples are sent locally by Jesus to proclaim that the king is coming. It it is a kind of forward-looking preaching, anticipation. But after the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, they are sent globally to proclaim that the king has now come. So the one great first number one characteristic of Christian mission, whether then or now or sometime in the future, is this. Our task, our task is to proclaim Jesus as God's King. Our task is to call people to bow their knee and their heart to Him. Our task is to warn people that rejecting him is the most serious crime that you could ever commit. The question here is one of who is in charge. The question here is one of ultimate reality. The world will tell you that we are in charge. God says that Jesus, his son, is the everlasting and ultimate king. That is the central issue. That is, in the end, our mission. Now, you you might remember about four hours ago, I said I had three broad characteristics. Do you remember? It was a long time ago now. These three characteristics, I think, emerge in this chapter, and I hope it's clear now, having made this connection that these broad characteristics are actually very relevant to us. Their time was different, but I think we can legitimately draw some conclusions from what Jesus says here and apply this to our own time in Rotherham today, now. So let me summarize this chapter. Oh man, I I feel like I'm sending you home to do homework and like take these three things away and just reflect on them. That's no bad thing. 
But uh, let me summarize this chapter and I'll give you all three characteristics at once. Because Jesus has died and risen and been exalted to the right hand of his Father in heaven, the characteristics of Christian mission ought to be energy, wisdom, and confidence, and courage. I think these are the main points of Jesus' training program for his own disciples right here. He says to them, be energetic, be wise, and be confident or courageous. So I want to say the same to you. Let me briefly outline where I get those three broad ideas from. First of all, be energetic. There there are some weird instructions here. Jesus says some very specific and slightly weird things to his disciples here. No money, no staff, no coat, no sandals. Verse 9. I think the point of all this is Jesus saying to his disciples, guys, travel light. There are people here in our country who desperately need to hear the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near. There's an urgency about this mission. For Jesus, I want to tell you, there is no time to lose. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't spend your whole life planning it. Just get on and do it. Be flexible, adaptable, be light on your feet. But whatever you do, do not fail to actually go. Don't just talk about reaching these people. Be brave and actually love people enough to go to where they are and tell them. I don't think we're meant to take this literally and go barefoot around Galilee like they did. But you get the point. What we can draw from this legitimately is the sense of agency. Jesus is the king. People need to know that he's the king. Jesus says, stop messing around with stuff that doesn't matter and get on with what you're meant to be doing. You get that sense? He is inspiring them to urgent action. I think it's amazing how much this reflects the Sermon on the Mount too. Stop worshipping money instead of Jesus. Stop spending your whole time worrying about yourself and your life and your future and your this and that and the other. You have a Father in heaven, Jesus said, who loves you. Get on mission and go. That's it's, It's kind of... If Jesus is king, Christian mission should not look anemic and lame and pathetic. It should look lively and sharp and energetic. And it seems to me that's what Jesus urges here. Oh, what did I say secondly? Be be wise. Um, Oh man, The, the words of Jesus here. For all sorts of reasons, let me highlight two areas of wisdom that are evident here. We'll just flick on one slide, Glenn. I'll let you do it. First of all, there is wisdom in being relational. I think this works two ways. Firstly, 
this kind of mission for and with Jesus, you can't do it on your own. At the start of this chapter, Jesus has 12 disciples. Matthew lists them all in six pairs. Two pairs of brothers even. And then four other pairs. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus sends them out in twos. And the point is, I think, that these guys are not meant to be lone rangers. They're meant to rely on each other, to work together, to challenge one another, encourage one another, support one another. I want to say to you, this is one of the reasons why being part of a church family, like this one, is so crucial. You, you can't be a Christian and be on mission on your own. I think Jesus would say, what are you waiting for if that's you? Don't hesitate. Commit to King Jesus and commit to his cause and commit to one another in this great task. But secondly, this mission actually involves not just being relational in terms of working together, but being relation in terms of actually going to people. This mission of Jesus is not a theoretical mission. It involves using words and going and talking to people, real people, not theoretical people. It involves love and kindness. This week, some of us in our church have been at a conference. I've been personally deeply challenged by how easy it is for me in ministry to be so busy doing things, planning things, that I personally fail to go and engage with people. I, I think you would agree with me that it is increasingly the case in our modern culture that people who need to know Jesus will not necessarily come to church. We live in a kind of post-Christian culture and we are going to need to go out to find people where they are and learn how to engage with people outside the church. And that is hard and costly. But secondly, I think there's wisdom here from Jesus. Let's have one, one more slide in being realistic. I love how Jesus urges them to be positive. Go and make peace. And yet he urges them to be aware of the risks. He warns them that in the same way that people reject him, people may reject them and us. And the, the basic truth is that not everyone wants Jesus to be their king. And where he is proclaimed as the ultimate king, opposition will arise. Power struggles will break out. There'll be casualties. And Jesus in this chapter is totally upfront with them about the possibility of persecution and danger even for some Christian believers, the possibility of death and martyrdom. 
I love how Jesus urges them to have common sense. He says in verse 16, be as shrewd as snakes. In verse 17, be on your guard. Jesus does not want his people to be gullible or stupid or to seek confrontation as if that's a good thing. He actually says to them in verse 23, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Don't just lie there and encourage it. Flee and go somewhere else if you have to. Listen, if Jesus is king, and if he went through the cross to gain his crown, how will we fare in this world if we expect it to be different for us? Jesus says in verse 24, a student isn't above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if the head of the house has been called the devil incarnate, Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. And lastly, I want to close by drawing your attention just to verses 26 down to 31. Be courageous. Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. In fact, he says it three times. It's there again in verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And it's there in verse 31. At the end, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Listen, Jesus knows that their major challenge will be the temptation to shut down because they're afraid of those who have the power to hurt them. And the thing Jesus is concerned about here is that because of their fear, they will fail to proclaim him because they've given in to their fears. Verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus gives so many encouragements to them here. He promises to be with them. He promises that the Spirit of the Father would give them the words to say when they need them. And Jesus says here, not least, that they are precious to God, their Father in heaven, who even knows the number of hairs on their heads. Some of you young people are at school. You know how hard it is even mentioning the name of Jesus. But Jesus knows you. He knows how hard it is for you to stand up for him. But he is with you as you do that and will give you courage. Well, we've been asking, what are the chief characteristics of Christian mission? I've suggested to you that the overarching issue here is the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the ultimate king. And because of this one great central fact, our task as Christian believers is to give ourselves to this mission with energy, with wisdom, and with boldness. 
I think this is as true for these disciples as it is for us here in Rotherham 2,000 years later. And it's true for every Christian in every age. And I want to say to you, let's do it for him. Let's do it together. And let's do it so that lost people in our communities will be found by Jesus the King. And if you are here today as someone, I don't know if, maybe you're curious about Christianity. I, I pray that this chapter would speak to your heart too and draw you to Jesus. Jesus will have you if you will have him to be your king. The door is wide open for you to come in and find forgiveness, cleansing, power, and purpose. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your mission in this world to seek and to save lost, rebellious, guilty people like us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, your son, who came into this world to save sinners. Please, would you stir our hearts to receive Christ as our King and to be on mission as your people here in Rotherham. Father, may you be pleased to use us to bring many precious souls to Christ. Would you encourage and strengthen our hearts and help us not to be afraid, but to be bold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.